following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. Well, do pick up a Bible. We're going to have our reading now, and uh, it's from John's Gospel, uh, page 1067. Uh, we're going to be reading from John chapter 4, verse 43. Sandy's going to come and preach in a moment, but Vicky is first going to come and read from John chapter 4, page 1067. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you, you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. When he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, he said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after the coming from Judea to Galilee. Thanks very much, Vicky. There is a handout coming round, and we're looking at the second miracle or sign in John's Gospel, Jesus saving a child from death, and our title is Come to Jesus with Your Mortality. Last week we looked at Come to Jesus with Your Thirst, Jesus has the answer to our deepest desires and longings, and this week we look at come to Jesus with your mortality. Jesus has the answer to our deepest fears. We are mortal. The one thing that all of us have in common is that we're going to die. But Jesus has the answer to death and to our fear of death. Twice Jesus says to this anxious father, your son will live. There is an answer to death, and it's not just a temporary answer, it's an eternal, it's a complete answer. So come to Jesus with your mortality. Near the end of John's Gospel, he tells us the reason why he's written it. And I think it's worth just flipping up to this. It's at the end of chapter 20, and uh, it's headed in our edition, The Purpose of John's Gospel, the end of John chapter 20, on page 1090. You'll see it near the top there, 
purpose of John's gospel, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So they're written in order for you, the reader, that's us, to believe. And the consequence of belief is, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the purpose of John's gospel is to give us life. Life is central to who Jesus is and what he gives us. The signs lead to faith, and faith leads to life. And I have four points about life-giving faith that you'll find on the sheet. The first is that faith depends on evidence, including signs. John uses his own particular word to describe miracles different from the other Gospels, and the word is sign. John uses it 17 times, including twice here. And you're about to see some signs appear on the screen. Final verse of this section. This was the second sign that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. The sign points to something. It's full of meaning. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. So signs are given to help us believe. I asked David to take that off the screen and we all sit there wondering if you'd pass your driving test if you had to do it today again. But there's also, signs are given so that we believe, but there's an ambivalence in that statement of Jesus in verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. Jesus is disappointed that they still need signs, even after they've already had a remarkable sign in Cana. That's where he is where he did his first sign, the water into wine. And John reminds us of that in verse 46. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. So they've had the evidence. They've seen the sign. Now they should trust him. Mature faith is not dependent on more and more signs. And we'll look at the balance between those two things in our first two points. Faith depends on evidence. Signs are given that we may believe. But as we go on in faith, we shouldn't need more and more signs. We should learn to trust God. So firstly, faith depends on evidence. What do the signs show us? What are they pointing to? Well, they show us the sovereign authority of Jesus over all sickness and disease over suffering, even over death. He doesn't have to go to the boy. He just speaks the words, your son will live. And at that moment, the deathly illness passes and the boy is instantly healed. Jesus doesn't call on a higher power. He doesn't invoke the name of the Lord because he is the higher power. He is the Lord. He never met an illness he couldn't cure. He never turned away anyone who came to him, he can even raise the dead. The scale of Jesus' healing miracles is like nothing else ever seen. More miracles, they say, in one day of his ministry than in the whole of the Old Testament. In those three years, Jesus must have pretty much abolished suffering and illness in the whole nation of Israel and even beyond because people came from vast 
distances and everyone was healed. This is unprecedented, never repeated, total control over sickness and disease and over nature, the wind and the waves, and over the forces of evil. This is not a human being with great God consciousness. This is God himself come to us. Tom Wright says this, How can you live with the terrifying possibility that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself has walked into our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing at all. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality or it is a sham and a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. That's the choice that the signs confront us with. If Jesus hadn't done these miracles, we would have had far more reason to doubt him. So signs show us who he is. But they also show us the kind of person he is. They show us his character. They show us that God is no happier with this broken, suffering world than we are. He is the enemy of suffering. Jesus' miracles are never naked displays of power. They always alleviate suffering or trouble, even if it's sometimes something quite small like running out of wine at your wedding. So the signs are showing us that this is not the kind of world that God wants. One theologian said this, miracles are not a suspension of the natural order, they're a restoration of the natural order. They're the only natural acts in a world which is unnatural, demonic, and wounded. God didn't create a world of lameness and deafness and blindness and hunger and death, and he's no happier with it than we are. Signs are thunder flashes on the horizon. They show us what's coming. God is the enemy of suffering, and one day he will get rid of it. And that's why Christians have always healed the sick and fed the hungry and cared for those in trouble. So signs give us evidence for faith. They're written so that we, the readers, may believe. That's the first point. Second point, mature faith grows in trust. It doesn't always need more signs. At the start, the official is focused on one thing only, the healing of his son. Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And then verse 49 The royal official said, Sir, come down before my son dies. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He probably doesn't care. All he is worried about is whether this guy can maybe, just maybe, help his son. But the encouraging thing is he doesn't stay there. When Jesus says, Go, your son will live, he believes him and he goes. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. It says in verse 50, so he'd taken a step of faith and trust. And then when the servants meet him and he discovers that the boy recovered the moment Jesus spoke the words, your son will live, it says at the end of verse 53, he and his whole household believed. So he started off nowhere spiritually, but he ends up 
a believer, someone with real faith and trust in Christ. And if you were here last week, then you'll realize that that echoes what we saw earlier in chapter 4, the woman at the well. She started off having no idea who Jesus was, wondering why he asked her for a drink and how he could get water without a bucket. But she ends up having the most profound conversation on worship with him that anyone has in the whole of the New Testament. Isn't that extraordinary? And she brings her whole village to faith. So there's this extraordinary progression over the chapter. And we see the same thing, by the way, in chapter 9, the man born blind. He starts off by saying the man they call Jesus. He doesn't know who he is. He ends up outsmarting the Pharisees in a conversation, a theological debate about who Jesus is. So real faith grows. It's living. And if it's not growing, it's in trouble. It's like that branch cut off from the tree. And I think that's what's behind the rather strange start to this passage. Just go back to verse 43. After two days, Jesus left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, which is his own country, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, that seems a bit odd, doesn't it? A bit of a contradiction. If he has no honor in his own country, why are the Galileans welcoming him? The commentators devote pages to discussing that. But I think what's happening is that Jesus has come from Samaria, not his own country. In Samaria, he did no miracles, and yet they believed in him. He had a wonderful welcome. They took him to their hearts. They didn't need a sign They trusted his words. And you can see that in verse 41. Because of his words, many more became believers. But now, back among his own people in Galilee, they don't trust him. They're still needing more signs. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Mature faith should grow. It should grow in trust. It shouldn't always need more displays of God's power. In the fourth Narnia book, Prince Caspian, the four children have come back to Narnia and they're lost in a wood. It's night time and the youngest of the four, Lucy, wakes up and she sees Aslan and he says, follow me and bring the others. So she wakes them up but none of them can see him. Don't be silly, they say. It was just a dream. You imagined it. But eventually she manages to persuade them to get up and to start following her. She can see Aslan, but they can only see her. But gradually, as they go, they begin to see his shadow. And then they hear echoes of his footsteps. And then they catch glimpses of him. And eventually they can see Aslan as clearly as Lucy can. I think what Lewis, C.S. Lewis is suggesting there is that as we trust God and follow him, we see him more clearly. Real faith grows. As you take those baby steps of trust, like the royal official does here, your faith grows. And that's what the people in his own country won't do. Unlike the Samaritans, they won't believe his words. They want more signs. So, this is tremendously encouraging 
if you're just on the edge of faith. I hope there are people here this morning who would say, I'm not a Christian, I'm just thinking it through, I'm checking it out, I'm wondering. Well, take a small step of obedience towards Jesus and see what happens. As we follow him, we see him better. You know, you can't examine God objectively from every direction. You can't put him in a test tube and think, hmm, you have to trust him step by step. But as you do that, you'll discover he's there and he's real. And it's also challenging to us if we've been a Christian a long time, isn't it? Because real faith is never static. We should always be moving forward. We should always be learning, a bit like a shark. If it doesn't keep moving, it will drown. Maybe that's not the best illustration. <laughs> Catholic friend of mine said to me recently, he's my age, he said, I don't think my faith has progressed at all since I was 11. Well, there's something wrong there, isn't there? You know, real faith is always alive. And often God demands more of us as we go on in faith. When we start off, we seem to get amazing, wonderful answers to prayer. We think, gosh, this is easy being a Christian. And then as we go on, those answers perhaps become less frequent because God expects us to trust him as he expected the Galileans here to trust him. In Prince Caspian, Lucy meets Aslan for the first time since the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Aslan, she says, you are bigger. That's because you're older, little one, he answers. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You see what he's saying there? God gets bigger to us because we learn to trust him more. Skeptics sometimes claim that faith is for childish and immature people. It's something we'll grow out of, they say. But the truth, I think, is just the opposite. Faith is something we grow in and we grow into. There's no end to the new things we can discover about God. So our faith should deepen and strengthen as we go on in that walk with the Lord. So faith depends on evidence. God has given us the evidence we need. The signs are here that we may believe. But mature faith grows in trust. We shouldn't need God to constantly be intervening in order to trust him. Okay, third point about life-giving faith. Faith is recognizing our dependence. It's recognizing that we don't have the answers. We need to depend on something or someone apart from ourselves. To use a silly example, you put your faith in that chair when you sat down this morning. You recognize you can't stand or crouch for an hour and a half, and so you trusted in, you depended on the chair. Well, the truth is we depend on God for everything. That verse Ed quoted from 1 Chronicles, everything comes from you. But most of the time, we don't realize that. Most of the time, we think we're pretty much okay without God. What brings us to recognize our dependence? Or to ask the question in a different way, why does John choose this miracle for his second sign? 
If you know John's gospel at all, you'll know he's very selective about signs. The other gospels have an explosion of miracles. They're everywhere across virtually every chapter. But this is only the second sign in the first four chapters of John. So why does he choose this one? Well, if you look at the top line just over the page, page 1068, it says there was a certain royal official whose son lay ill at Capernaum. A certain royal official. In other words, this guy is powerful, he's successful, he's got it all, he's part of the elite. He doesn't need anything until now. Until suddenly his son is ill and then everything changes. He begged Jesus to come down. The danger of death brings this guy to Jesus and in the end leads him to faith. It's the chink in his armor, the crack where the light gets in. In other words, death is the thing no one has an answer to. Death makes us ask the questions that the gospel is the answer to. Death makes us ask the questions to which the gospel is the answer. The husband of a church warden in our previous church was a very nice chap, but he wasn't a believer. And he said to me one day, I just don't feel I have any need for religion. I'm perfectly happy in my life without it, which is probably true. But I said to him, the problem, John, is that one day you're going to die. And that's when you're going to find out whether you need it or not. Death is the one thing to which no one, no matter how successful or happy, has the answer. Now, of course, the truth is, as I say, that we depend on God for everything. Even, Jesus says, our daily bread has to be asked for every day. Give us today our bread for today, is what the Lord's Prayer says. Come back every day and recognize your dependence. But often we don't realize that. We think we're fine until we're faced with something that we can't handle. Our own death or the death of someone we love. Death makes us ask those questions to which the gospel is the answer. It's been said that our culture has the lowest pain threshold in history. It says, make the most of today, do your best for your life, find out who you really are and go for it. But the problem comes when suffering and death comes. It has nothing to say. It gives us no resources to help us handle those things. We can't even use the D word. We have to talk about passing. So death, I suggest to you, is a key contact point for the gospel. Where else can we go, said Peter to Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. Death makes us recognize that we need God. Okay, last point. Faith in Jesus leads to life. These things are written that you might believe, and by believing you may have life in his name. Life is a key theme in John's gospel. In fact, it's probably the key theme in the gospel. It's the way John talks about salvation. He uses the word salvation once. He uses the word life 50 times in the gospel. 
most famous verse in the Bible, already quoted this morning, John 3.16, God so loved the world he gave his only son that he should not perish, sorry, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Yeah, that's why he came. That's what he came to bring us. In Jesus is life. And yet, our make-the-most-of-today culture is undone by death. Jesus only has to speak here and death retreats. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. Once a person is united with God, how could they not live forever? And once a person is separated from God, how could they not wither and die? Well, how can our culture find an answer to death? How does it handle death? I suggest because it has nothing to say, it deals with death by ignoring it. The Times columnist Caitlin Moran said, for most of my life I found thinking about death so unspeakably terrifying that I would wriggle away from it like a dog being lowered into a bath. I would wriggle away from it like a dog being lowered into a bath. Michael Caine said when he was 76, I never think about my own mortality. No, no, you must never do that. I have so many plans. I've behaved my whole life as if I were immortal. Well, he's now 90, and it's still working. Mark Ashton was a vicar in Cambridge who was diagnosed with terminal cancer at the age of 62. And because of his faith in Jesus, he talked openly with people about his coming death in the 15 months before he died. But he found this really unsettled people. He said, our age is so devoid of hope in the face of death that the topic has become unmentionable. Once he was having his hair cut in Eastbourne and the woman cutting his hair asked how he was, we said, well, I've only got a few months to live. He said, the ordinary friendliness and chattiness of the place ceased. And no matter how much I tried to talk to her, I could not get another word out of her for the rest of the haircut. We have no answer to death, and so we deal with it by ignoring it. That's why we talk about passing, as if it's rude to say someone has died. We can't talk about the one thing we all have in common, the most fundamental fact of human existence. And yet, of course, we all know that death has not gone away. Some have suggested that's why we're working so hard. Our repressed fear of death means we don't want to stop for a moment in all our work and busyness because then we'd have to face the fact that sooner or later it will all stop. And of course, we're desperate for hope, some hope. This is a death notice I happened to see in the paper about a month ago. Uh, for someone called Sean. And it says, a singular man who died as he lived, bravely and compassionately. Entrepreneur extraordinaire. We can be sure that wherever he is now, he will be advising on the streamlining of the company, improving profits, and ensuring the welfare of the employees. What? I mean, isn't that both ridiculous and tragic? They're admitting they don't know where he is. They have no idea wherever he is now. 
And yet at the same time, they're saying he's going to be carrying on the kind of corporate management job, streamlining the company that he did when he was alive. It's completely balmy, and yet it's tragic that we have nothing real to say about the most fundamental fact of human existence. Richard Coles said, after the death of his partner, if you ever wonder what the relevance of the Christian faith is for people today, try a deathbed. That's when we know we need an answer. Where else can we go, says Peter, you have the words of eternal life. Only Jesus has the answer to that most basic human problem and fear, the certainty of our death. And I think it's just worth saying that it's not just our modern secular culture that has nothing to say about death. It's also true of other religions. Just give you two examples. First, Buddhism. The Dalai Lama was once asked what we should do about death, and he said, you better face up to it. That's it. You better face up to it. That's not much help, is it? The only hope in Buddhism is extinction, nirvana, the blowing out of the flame. Its only answer to death is nothingness, extinction. Or, second example, Islam. There is paradise if you've been good enough. But have you? The problem is you can never know. There is no assurance. Even Muhammad himself could not be sure that he was going to heaven. Your hope is always uncertain. Where else can we go? If you're not certain of the relevance of the Christian faith to people today, try a deathbed. Jesus has the words of eternal life. Your son will live. Jesus has been through death for us and come out the other side. As Ed said at the start of the service, last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, the start of Lent, and Lent comes from the word lengthening, the day's lengthening. It's our way of building up, one way of building up to the central Christian festival, the hope at the start of our faith. And the Anglican funeral service calls that a sure and certain hope. Sure and certain, because the hope's not in us, it's in him, the risen one, the one who has conquered death. That's what we have if you put your faith in him, a sure and certain hope. Where else can we go? So faith depends on evidence. We're given signs that we may believe. But mature faith grows in trust. It shouldn't need more and more signs. Faith is recognizing our dependence, that we don't have the answers. And death is the one thing to which no one has an answer. It makes us ask the questions that only the gospel can answer. So come to Jesus with your mortality, because he has the words of eternal life, and no one else does.